Next on Fresh Air, Terry interviews smooth jazz oboist Carmichael Furwinkle about the way the AIDS crisis impacted his embouchure. Welcome to Radio Free Portland, name pending change, uh, formerly Situational Significance, formerly, formerly not a podcast. This is the news podcast that's not What a Week, where we talk about things in depth and also maybe not those things and maybe just stuff. Just fine. Anyway. I'm Nick Gatlin. I'm the Vanguard's multimedia editor, and I'm here with a special guest. I'm Nick Townsend. I'm Nick Townsend. I am the Vanguard's managing editor, uh, formerly arts and culture editor, formerly host of this podcast. Full circle. Yeah. So, current events. Um, we're living through hell. Um, we, we're, for, for reference, we're recording this podcast, um, on the evening of, uh, November 5th. And, um, yes. I think as we speak, Georgia, uh, Biden's down by about 1500 votes. Yeah. So for context, we are in the middle of the 2020 election. We still don't know who's won. We may not even know by the time this is uploaded, who knows? About um, an hour ago, um, Trump, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this, um, Trump did a press conference where he basically said that he won and all the ballots were fake, um, which is a great sign. Yeah, so uh, the, these are uh, fun times, fun times. Um, but because we are a PSU student newspaper and not NPR, we're going to talk about state and local races because they matter That's more, honestly, to people here. So. Way more way more yeah yeah um and the the actual top line for right now that i was thinking of is uh protests downtown and across the city um and we got the announcement that oregon governor kate brown uh has extended that law enforcement unified command uh through friday uh, mm-hmm. that's basically the oregon national guard uh, portland police multnomah county sheriff's office all those law enforcement agencies are coordinating in Portland for the foreseeable future during election happenings. Uh, and there have been some protests in the city. Uh, from what I can tell, they're not huge. Yeah, there are a few it, hundred people. It doesn't seem to be like significantly larger than the than the protests preceding the election from from what I've gathered. Right. And and also we, we should I mean there it hasn't it like there hasn't been a result, so yeah. So you know. there's really nothing to be mad about yet, or or happy about. Right. Um, I think there were some protests saying like count every vote, which there was some I, protests saying yeah. votes don't really matter. We should do anarchism. Right. Um, and um, there were some some uh, windows smashed, some flags mm-hmm. burned, some mm-hmm. ants chanted. You know normal normal portland night um so 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 i guess um that leads me to question why the national guard is here yeah i i really don't know why i'm i'm assuming it was because under the prospect that trump might have won then i'm i'm sure that there you know would have been a pretty explosive response you know just judging by 2017 yeah um, but also you know i'm sure uh officials are are pretty on edge right now especially after you know the summer and and not that i endorse anything done by any official or not done this podcast has no official political stance um but but you can figure you know, it out i understand i get it you know um I think the National Guard is more of a precaution and yeah. less of like a necessary measure. Well, but yeah, but um, I yeah, but now we're we've extended it to Friday, um, which I guess is because the election has been extended to Friday. Um, 
But it's it's also interesting because I'm sure Kate Brown realizes, as we all do, that um, Trump's pathway to victory is pretty narrow. Um, but I guess um, you know the National Guard response could also be effective in a scenario where maybe Trump doesn't concede, and then um, there would there would surely be protests in the street over that as well. Yeah, and uh, also you know there is a genuine fear of. Uh, right-wing violence or militias, you know, taking some action in that case. Um, we, we have seen previously, you know, there were like Trump caravans coming through the suburbs of mm. Portland and someone died in town. Yeah. And um, there, there's a, there's a real fear and kind of expectation about that. If the president does, make some certain comments about an election and you know which has happened for the record already happened right and um you know i would say that most of the anger right now has been concentrated in like arizona and pennsylvania at like election counting facilities but yeah who knows i mean it's 2020 so yeah that's uh, yeah um this, I mean, this is just something that's going to play out on a day-by-day basis, which is why it's so important that we record a podcast right in the middle of it um, so that it's useless within 24 hours. Yeah, that's that's really my goal in life is to... Uh, mm-hmm. Expire is, is as quickly as possible, yeah. Yeah, and also uh, I should note that uh, I didn't actually get this uh, story until today, and I forgot to put it in the outline for this podcast, but... Um, the Portland City Council actually today uh, voted down Joanne Hardesty's amendment to uh, decrease Portland Police's budget by $18 million. Um, it was, I think, the mayor and Commissioner Ryan and Fritz voted against it. Um, and that was... Was was Ryan the swing vote on that? I think so. Um, and also one interesting thing about that is uh, Dan Ryan was endorsed by Commissioner Hardesty in his uh, in his race. And there there were some words at the hearing and it, it was uh, it was a minor controversy for most people, I would say, but it was it is a genuine, you know, point of contention. And, and the mayor was very clear in his beliefs. And so were the other commissioners. Um, yeah. So, um, so let's talk about the mayor. Why don't we? Yeah. Uh, he won. Long may he term. reign. Uh, yeah, Ted Wheeler uh, defeated uh, Sarah Iannarone for the second time after defeating her in 2016. Um, and he is the first Portland mayor to win two terms since uh, Vera Katz, I think, the 90s. Mm-hmm. I know you're you're from Colorado, so you, you may not well, know don't these, out. Uh, <laughs> This deep lore, um, but yeah, it, it the point is it's it's kind of unusual for a Portland mayor to win a second term because it's kind of like the defense against the dark arts position. Whoever comes in is inevitably going to leave in disgrace and sadness. And it's also it's a pretty long term for mayor. Yeah, um, it's you know it's it's four years and like city politics. Um... I mean, in some ways are dreadfully slow and boring, but also in other ways move and shift very quickly. So, uh, I mean, a four-year term is, is a long time in, in the city of Portland. Yeah, and and the thing is that during the primary, uh, it was actually kind of a surprise that he got dragged into a runoff because, uh, you know, last time he won a majority outright, but uh, this year he actually got under 50%. Uh, and, you know, then the pandemic hit and the protest happened um, and he was widely seen as I would say an ineffective leader. Um, A lot of, Hey, um, he got tear gassed. I'll have, you know, (laughs) Um, so I, I think a a majority of Portlanders disapproved of his uh, actions during the protests. Uh, There was a poll that showed he had like 20% approval sometime during the summer. Um, so this was a bit of a surprise, you know. Uh, and we should also note there was a uh, large constituent of write-in votes. 13%, which, right? Which we, we, yeah, around 
13. I think the the totals are like 12 to 13. For um, Teresa Rayford. Well, the interesting thing about that is we don't actually know because they won't oh. tell us. Because apparently they don't count write-in votes unless they're like leading another candidate. But in all likelihood, most of them were Teresa Rayford or Teresa. Or, I'd, I'd be shocked if a majority of them were not for her. Yeah, and and you know she was the only one to really run a write-in campaign, explicitly mm-hmm. asking for for votes that way. Um, she was in third place in the in the initial primary, right? Yeah, and and she actually wasn't too far behind Anna Roan, I think, in the primary. Um, but you know, obviously, the way that that Portland primaries work is that the top two go to the general, and yeah, then jungle primary. Yeah. Uh, and we, we also have nonpartisan elections, which are their whole their whole other beast. Um, but they they do create kind of interesting scenarios like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly much more competitive scenarios than, you know, Ted Wheeler versus, you know, Republican guy who still lives in Multnomah County. Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, it, it was kind of a election between centrist and left and and you know it's and lefter if you include the right in yeah i would say you know it's a representative of of portland divisions as a whole um and speaking of those divisions uh in the city council there was a bit of a spicy race incumbent commissioner chloe udaly actually lost her seat to mingus maps Mm. who um has shown more support in general for uh, property owners and neighborhood associations than Udaly, who was famously a, a renter's advocate. And he was also endorsed by the Portland Police Association um, and is in general, I think, uh, more of a centrist to further right uh, candidate than Udaly. Yeah, I've seen an, an, an... I've seen more signs out for Mingus Maps than I have for Wheeler, or maybe even or Yanaron. He had a, he had an incredible ground campaign, which has been which has been covered pretty thoroughly by the the week. I think. Yeah, I d- I did see that too, um, and I I may be misinterpreting results, but I did see uh, in the in the Willamette Week that the precinct breakdown showed that like on the east side it was mostly Udaly and Yanaron votes. And then west of the Willamette, it was more uh, Wheeler and, and Maps. Uh, so make of that what you will. I don't know. That's. I mean, I live in Hillsdale, which is about as west Portland as you can get. Um, and I have I have no point because I didn't vote in this election, <laughs> but I do live here. Yeah, and I, I've noticed too. Um, I'm in you know northwest, kind of outside of Portland, in this weird Beaverton area Mm -hmm. um and you know i have i have seen more support for uh maps out here i i've seen no signs for for wheeler but i have not i think i don't think i've seen a single wheeler sign and i was um there was a period where over the summer where i was doing um bike deliveries uh, like across the whole city um through neighborhoods and i don't think i've seen a single wheeler sign yeah uh not to sound you know, too biased, but I, I do think that his campaign was less of a, you know, vote for me because I'm offering X and more of a, you know, I'm the mayor. Who else are you going to vote for? Yeah. Uh, that was the sense that I got from him. Uh, I didn't see much active campaigning. Well, it's it's good to know um, that 47% of the political base of Portland is just like, the ladies who yell at me for bagging their groceries wrong at work. The PSU Vanguard does not endorse that statement. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it is interesting to note also that the uh, incumbent mayor, actually, I think now that the final votes are coming in, did win a plurality, but not a majority. Yeah. Very um, close to a majority. Yeah, very close. Um, but I, but also, earlier in the night, it w- it was a majority for a moment. Yeah, and then I think they started counting more votes from the east side. Um, mm-hmm. But it it's interesting that you know a majority of Portlanders did want somebody else, um, but 
just because of how our elections work, you know, we got uh, the guy with the most votes. So, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because then why, why the primary? Yeah, that is, that is interesting because the whole point of the primary is to have a two-person runoff and have a majority winner, and then that just kind of... Well, and that was sort of the, the whole pitch of uh, Reefer's writing, writing campaign was that, um, you know, the primary should be structured like that, and it, there should, um, you know, there should be a ranked system. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that there's some merit to that. Um, it, you know, it does seem like the, uh, the will of the majority of voters wasn't really uh, met in this election just because of how it's structured. Um, but, you know. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, that is mathematically true that um, the majority of the voters did not get what they wanted, but I'm not really sure the political landscape of Portland would be all that different if Ted Wheeler had gotten 4% more of the vote. Yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can talk about anything that could have been, but how useful is that? Um, anyway, we should probably move on. Um, uh, Shamia Fagan won the secretary of state race, uh, which isn't, I don't think too much of a surprise based on polling and, and partisan lean in the state. Um, but you know, we should note that the secretary of state right now is a Republican. Um, Oh really? Yeah. She took over, um, for Dennis Richardson who was elected, uh, four years ago and he was a Republican and that was kind of an upset. Um, but now it, it does seem like, you know, the statewide Democratic majority has kind of coalesced again around a candidate. Um, I don't I don't know. Much, too, much to the chagrin of everyone east of the I-5 corridor. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, that's how it goes. It's the two Oregons. Um, so now I feel like the more interesting part of election night was all the ballot measures which yeah. are um, based on... They're, they're getting some national attention, for sure. Yeah, uh, b- based on the candidates that, that Oregonians voted for versus the issues and the ballot measures, I would say the ballot measures are much more progressive, um, including Measure that's 110. That's true nationwide, too. Yeah, um, that that's really true of this entire election. Um, but one measure that that i would say probably made the most waves was measure 110 um which made oregon the first state in the country to decriminalize the possession of most if not all drugs um you know cocaine heroin oxycodone methamphetamine possession of all those drugs now is lsd uh yeah that too it's a civil violation now um so it's basically the same as a as a traffic offense it's like a it's a fine or um or rehab admission you have a choice i believe right um i think so uh there's so from what i understand there's now like an advisory board uh within the state legislature that will uh advise them on like how much funding they should give to rehab clinics and and where and how they should build them um but it definitely does uh if not provide funding it provides like the pathway to that mm-hmm. um and also related is Measure 109, which legalized uh, therapeutic psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Thank uh, God for Dr. Bronner on that one. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, psilocybin, if you don't know, is the active ingredient in uh, what we call magic mushrooms or shrooms. It's all magic to me, but go on. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those drugs that it, it it's Schedule One under federal law, um, same as marijuana. But, Which puts it above cocaine, right? Uh, and also, Schedule One means it has no medical use, uh, same as marijuana, which I think we have very shown, untrue. Yeah, shown is not true. Um, so now it, it can be used uh, as a therapy, as as a guided therapy by physicians and psychologists and therapists to uh, treat PTSD, depression, uh, other mental health issues. Um, also, I guess it, it's used in hospice care sometimes for that makes sense yeah for patients with anxiety same with marijuana right 
Um, so I think in general, uh, Oregon is is a leader on these issues. You know, we're like the first ones to to do this. Um, and we had a tobacco tax increase and a, a, a vape tax or tax on e-cigarettes. Um, it's it's pretty simple. It's just a tax. Uh, it's a 65% tax on, on vapes, and there's a new tax on premium cigars. But um, is this on cigarettes too? Or just... I, yeah. It, so it increased the cigarette tax by $2 a pack. So this um, this was uh, interestingly actually not endorsed by Street Roots. It was specifically like opposite endorsed um, by Street Roots because it... Um, I mean, it criminalizes smoking essentially. I mean, it, it just makes it unattainable for someone who's houseless to be able to buy cigarettes. Yeah, and I did notice that there's not there like there's a there's a large focus on taxing as a deterrent, but not as much on like you know education, education or um, addiction treatment or. Mm-hmm anything of that sort um and from the from the many 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 ads i saw um on youtube and on tv and they had a lot of money in this measure oh my god um the general message was like the tax is meant to stop smoking yeah which is um... which is an interesting strategy uh it's it's an interesting strategy i i mean it's it's proven not effective also um also i mean also like to tobacco is is clinically addictive like you can't just make it expensive and expect people to stop being addicted to it yeah and and so i think on the scale of uh drug measures that we saw this election there's a very strange range of, of ideas here like it yeah yeah for sure like if coffee cost nine dollars a cup i would not stop drinking coffee i would just be very angry about it right and and there is the sense you know throughout history when people have been unable to afford alcohol and cigarettes etc i mean they've you know bought it anyway um there's um i mean there's a really interesting comparison here that i'm sure um that i'm sure ted wheeler doesn't want to be made um between um, measures like this and um, Bloomberg's nanny state um, when he was mayor of New York, um, like uh, limiting the limiting the cup sizes of sodas, and um, you know basically outlawing formula for infants, and um, very 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 similar cigarette measures, um, basically trying to you know improve this the citizens' health just through brute force. Yeah, it does feel kind of similar to, um, you know, 2000s, 2010, early 2010, uh, New York City kind of policies. Um, it's interesting, you know, it, it's that it's that kind of um, that that specific type of liberal policy that is kind of liked by no one, hated by everyone, but it happens. Well, I mean, I don't I don't think anyone. Um... I don't. I don't think anyone who votes is particularly fond of it. But also, it's. I mean, it's really easy to ignore it if you don't smoke. And smokers are not like an effective caucus in an election cycle. Yeah, there's no there's no smokers union as far as I'm aware. Yeah, and the the, the tobacco companies clearly just don't have enough money to effectively message this, which is, for the record, a good thing. And you can't quote Vanguard on that one. Yeah, it is actually interesting that um, I saw like no fight from the tobacco industry on this, which is, I mean, I might have just been, you know, consuming the the wrong media and they might have been targeting other markets. But in general, it does seem like kind of big tobacco doesn't well, have the influence it did. Well, another way to interpret that is that um, big tobacco has decided that um, increasing the, the price of cigarettes by $2 isn't going to influence their sales because the, the people buying them are going to buy them anyways. Yeah, that's true. And it, and it could be one of those instances where they're accepting 
you know, kind of kind of a bad policy for them in order to kind of stave off meaningful reform. Yeah. Which I think they, they have done in the past and what like soda companies have done with soda taxes and stuff. It's it's a similar playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to, to more uplifting news. Uh, Multnomah County voters approved uh, universal preschool. So did Colorado for the record. Just throwing it out there. And yeah, no, no one cares about Colorado. Um, Fair enough. So the measure... Uh, it's it's basically a 1.5% income tax on people who make higher than $125,000 a year or couples making over 200,000 and that pays for tuition free preschool for children between 3 and 4 mm-hmm. um and it was supported by the Latino network the coalition of communities of color unions business groups also, the Portland chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. There was a strong ground game for this campaign. Yeah, um, and there was a you know there's a whole campaign up now. You know, Universal Preschool now. I saw signs everywhere. Just anecdotally, uh, I had like five different uh, signature people come up to me within a yeah. week. Yeah, um, and that was on top of the Silas Ivan stuff and everything else. I mean, it was it was insane. I, I yeah, especially at farmers markets, for whatever reason, there was a ton of um, a ton of signature people. Yeah, um, and I think they did kind of target those, uh, you know, more suburban e areas of the city where like that that type of person who goes to a farmers market might go. I don't know. Yeah, I'm getting into like pundit brain here, but um, yeah, it it did seem like they were strategically targeting some parts of the city. I mean whatever they did worked yeah it worked really well (laughs) um and like i don't know like we have universal preschool now that's crazy that yeah literally didn't exist before you know yeah and and it's going to be really interesting to see how this develops um and uh you know what sort of impact it really does have on working families because this is something that's um obviously is basically routine in every Nordic and a lot of European countries, um, but is sort of a first in America from my understanding. It's, it's happened on a more, um, on a, on a more localized level, but Multnomah County is a big County. Yeah. And I mean, I think if, if it can succeed here, then that's a good omen for like the rest of the state or the rest of the country. Um, Yeah. I mean, if Multnomah County, likes it um that's that's a very significant um way to getting it passed statewide yeah and i think it also shows that there's you know there is the will for free school Mm -hmm. um this was you know specifically preschool but uh (laughs) (laughs) are you are you speaking in your own interest right now Maybe there will be a, a ballot measure about like tuition-free higher education. Who knows? I um, I think the way that would uh, realistically play out would be um, free community college, at least as a stepping stone. Yeah, and and I also think it's again getting into my my pundit brain here, but uh, this is a city that voted for you know Ted Wheeler and uh, Mingus Maps in this election and they also voted for free preschool yeah um and i think if well if i in mean that environment you know it can win yeah i mean i think something important to consider is that um basically every person who wrote in Teresa rayford would have would have voted for this measure just based on what sh- her politics are um so yeah the 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 Anaron and the rayford vote were essentially united on this Right. And, and I think that, um, you know, I, I haven't seen the official returns, um, since like Tuesday, but, uh, I, I do think that it passed pretty convincingly. It wasn't like a super close measure. Like the, um, you know, one ten was more like a 10 point gap. This was like 20. Mm. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's just kind of a good omen. Um, it's it shows that there is a will for that kind of stuff. Um, and speaking of things that might ripple out across the country, 
uh, Oregon voters decided to place limits on campaign contributions in the state constitution. Um, this is something that is inherently uh, very boring to talk about, but is one of maybe the most important issues on, yeah. especially on like a national level. Yeah, because this basically shapes like who uh, gets elected to offices and like who has the money for ads and yeah, it, I mean it, it, it. I think the I think the charitable way to read this um, this sort of initiative is that it's um, limiting the the voice of wealthy people in politics. Yeah, um, basically, uh, it, it didn't have any organized opposition. Um, not to say that there is an opposition, just there wasn't to this measure. Um, and it basically is Oregon voters saying that like money isn't speech. Um, <laughs> which is, a, I mean, it's a really interesting dynamic to have um, a ballot initiative, that, um, you know, more or less invalidate a Supreme Court ruling. Right. And actually a uh, state Supreme Court ruling, uh, a little while ago, I think during the campaign, uh, found that like under Oregon's constitution, you couldn't limit contributions. Um, and so this was basically put in there to, to fix that and like amend Oregon's constitution. Yeah. Cause this is, this is a constitutional amendment. So this invalidates that, that case. Right. And so with the U.S. Supreme Court as it is, I mean, no one knows what's going to happen. You know, they can do what they want. But in general, uh, they have kind of respected the rights of state Supreme Courts to decide their own state constitution. Um, I say in general because, again, who, who, we have no clue. Um, who knows? But this likely means that uh, campaign finance limits in Oregon will be regulated yeah because this um this amendment doesn't specify a number which i i think is really smart because the the number would just be wrong 10 years from now yeah um, so when, it, it gives the power to the state legislature to set yeah them. um and basically it won i mean according to results from wednesday they might have changed by now but not by much um it won by four to one I mean, it was a pretty resounding victory. Yeah, I mean, Citizens United is, I think, like the single most unpopular um, Supreme Court case of the modern era. I think even Republicans have something like 70% disapproval of it. Yeah, and the thing about ballot measures that's nice is that uh, everyone has one vote and uh, there just aren't that many rich people. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think another really important thing about ballot measures is that there's no um, there's no R or D next to it, you know. Yeah, and that's that's a thing that we've seen across this election is that uh, certain issues are way more popular than maybe if you if if you don't attach uh, an affiliation to it, especially. Yeah, um, that's the nice thing about ballot measures is that they're nonpartisan and. Mm -hmm. Um, every I mean, reg single... regardless of who is actually supporting them, which is clearly partisan. Well, yeah. I mean, um, but also, when's the last time that you checked out every single ballot measure supporter? I haven't. Yeah. Um, I, an interesting case study in this was um, uh, on my ballot in Colorado. Um, every single ballot measure was approved except for one that would have banned late-term abortion, um, which was disapproved by I think like 65% or some very high amount like that. Um, so I, I, I think what, what I want to say that proves is that people are actually paying attention to these ballot measures and are like critically, critically analyzing them, maybe more so than they do political candidates. Yeah. And I would also say that in this environment where um, so much of national law, like especially settled like centuries old law or decades old is so up in the air because of the current composition of the Supreme Court and their kind of willingness to overlook precedent. It's even more important that states are taking it upon themselves to like write these rules into their own yeah. laws and constitutions. Yeah. 
Um, I, this is sort of thing that I that I think doesn't get enough attention. That isn't widely um, people aren't widely educated on. But state um, constitutions hold an incredible amount of power. And um, I mean, we're a, at least for a period originally designed to be much more um, you know much more powerful than the federal constitution, which obviously isn't true today, but um, is worth noting. Yeah, and even today, um, the Supreme Court again in in general because anything in can change. theory in theory um they are they, they defer a lot to state constitutions and state supreme courts um and if like the oregon constitution says for example abortion is a right then there's not much that they could or would do about that I, they would i mean they would have to say that abortion is on all levels unconstitutional at the federal level to override yeah. that basically yeah, just, you know, in the um, very possible scenario, I would say that um, Roe v. Wade is either overturned or further uh, deteriorated. Yeah, um, then that would just mean that, like, it's up to the states and the states decide for themselves. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think even in the most extreme, we're getting into punditry again, um, but I think even yes, in the most, <laughs> I think even in the most extreme scenario, what we'll see is probably just um, a, a very serious rollback or um, limitation to row and as, and not, you know, just a straight ahead striking down. So anyway, campaign finance limits. We we did it, guys. Yeah. That's so we yeah. So that's the conversation about that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Basically, uh, ballot measures are more important than you think. Uh, you should pay and, attention to them. Yeah. Uh, there and I mean, I feel like ballot measures every year become a little bit every election year that is become a little bit more um, powerful and interesting in the ways they sort of subvert um, the the partisan politics that we're so used to. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, this is a census year, and redistricting is going to happen. So, uh, state legislatures matter a lot too. Yeah. Well, I mean, a little late there, but voting's yeah. over. Um. Anyway, uh, the the last major ballot measure that uh, we have is the Portland Metro area, the transportation measure. Uh, it's. 26218, which was a payroll tax on employers with more than 25 employees. Uh, and that money it would raise a 0.75% payroll tax. Right. I mean, it was, it was marginal. Um, the money would have gone toward transportation improvements for TriMet. Um, you know, there's a proposed max line into Southwest. There were, um, you know, highway improvements, et cetera. Um, that measure failed. Yeah, I mean, speaking as someone that lives in Hillsdale, that would have been tight, but whatever. Yeah, kind of kind of disappointing, not going to lie. But, um, yeah. Uh, free, Metro... oh, actually, um, so I'm reading through your outline right here. Um, free youth transit passes. Um, that that alone would have pushed it over the edge for me. Were were I able to vote in this state? Right. Uh, free youth transit passes. Uh, also, a massive effort to replace diesel buses with uh, either electric buses or, mm -hmm. or lower carbon. Well, um, and I mean, I think they're really sorry not to jump on top of you, but the really interesting conversation um, to have is how. Um, Charging charging young people for transport is essentially just a tax on people who can't afford cars, because obviously you're not going to send your kid on the bus if you have a car. You'll just drive them wherever you need to go. So by charging youth people to young people to ride the bus or the max, you're you're just effectively um, distance or you know um, taxing poor people. Yeah, to to get into my um, I don't know anti-Paul Krugman brain, um, it, it is kind of, it's a regressive tax, if you think about it that way, because it does, you know, kind of explicitly tax the poor um, and leaves out wealthy people or people yeah. who can afford cars and, and reliable transportation. Um, and, you know, the most of the uh, 
the messaging that I saw on this measure was about the tax part um, and like taxing employers and, you know, that the one line, it was like, it's not the right time to tax employers. It's like small businesses yeah. are struggling enough, um, which is, I feel like there was a lot of emphasis on that. Yeah. But I, also how many, re- how many restaurants in the Portland area really have more than 25 employees? right yeah. now i mean and also like most small businesses in general i mean like unless you're you're running something that really does need over 25 people working there that i mean what i will say have is that much of an effect right yeah Port- portland does have a lot of um little empires like uh blue star donuts or salt and straw or um you know chef's table um, that certainly yeah. have more than 25 employees um, and are are absolutely struggling right now. But that's sort of a separate conversation to transportation. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting pairing for sure um, to to couple um, to couple transportation with a payroll tax as opposed to um, as opposed to the individual high income tax to um, to pay for preschool. Yeah, I mean there there are a lot of options. There's preschool tax. There's um, you know just taking out of the general fund. Even I mean there's it's also interesting to me. Uh, I talked I talked to um, Professor Miller about this before too. But this is a really good example of kind of political punting the ball um, because Metro could have passed this or voted it down themselves, but instead they referred it to the ballot. Oh yeah. They wouldn't have to take responsibility either way. Yeah. They could sort of just wave their hands of it. Yeah. Because a lot of these other ballot measures were genuine grassroots movements. Like there were people on the ground and this one was referred by Metro. And I, I don't know. I don't see a great reason for that. Isn't Metro sort of famously wishy-washy? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure most people even really know what they do beyond like what the Portland city council does, or um, I, at least in my experience, they are kind of um, the transportation guys. Yeah. And they're, they're kind of, you know, opaque in what they do. Um, But it, it does seem it, it, it seems kind of distasteful to like put something this important and this complicated on the ballot when like, when you, this is, this is the top line that we've said, but like if you read the ballot measure, it's like, it's pages. It's just so long. Yeah. It's beefy. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's uh, going back to the, to it being a payroll tax. I, um, I think you could definitely make the argument that um, it should um, in reality, um, the funding for these two measures should be flipped because if you think about it, um, the, the main value of universal preschool is that it allows um, parents to have a safe place to park their child while they're at work for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who should be paying for that? I think you could definitely make the argument that it should be the employers because if not for them, the parent could be at home with their three-year-old child. Um Whereas, um, as I discussed earlier, um, the transportation measure um, would basically only affect people who couldn't afford a car. And if if you're making two hundred thousand dollars a year, you can certainly afford a car. And um, you know, maybe maybe the fact that you can afford a car should um, should provide some sort of benefit to people who can't. Yeah, and just to jump off of that too, um, I think if the tax would have been more of a high income tax rather than a payroll tax it it, the messaging could have been more like redistributionist and it could have been the it could have been more a message of fairness yeah a lot of the messaging that i heard was you know they just want to build a max line to washington square because they want to go to the mall which is true that is why i want it which is but, like also who am I? Yeah. Also, like a lot of people work at that mall. Um, yeah. And like a lot of people live well, and at all in the, the stops area. In, in between the mall and downtown. Yeah, and like the yeah. mall is a transit center as well. And like yeah. Well, and as it as it stands, if you 
live near that mall and you want to go to downtown Portland, you have to take the West, which runs maybe five times a day. And you have to take that up to Beaverton and then transfer to the max and then take that to, to downtown Portland, which is what, like a two or two and a half hour trip each way. Yeah. And, and I think just in in, in general, like a failure of this was, um, you know, they they allowed it to be framed as kind of a giveaway to the rich when in reality it was like this really would have helped the working class yeah which does um i mean we can have the whole west versus east conversation but there's um there's a lot of people who um live in beaverton and commute to portland for various reasons i mean um to sort of um micro it back into psu um there are tons of PSU students who live in the Beaverton or the Tigard area and um, have to have to schlep to campus every day or did have to schlep before the pandemic. Yeah. And that's the thing is that, I mean, PSU is a commuter school and this, you know, just speaking narrowly about the school, like this would have really helped. Yeah. And I do wonder if, you know, being what, seven months into the pandemic now and, you know, Obviously, people are still commuting and still going into work, but um, I think maybe with a certain segment of people, then transportation might have been not as top of mind as it would have been if they had been commuting like right now. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, On a very um, on a very like voter to voter level, less just less people are are commuting or thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, I wonder if that might have made the difference. Uh, I think this. This wasn't like super close, but um, in terms of Portland elections, it, it wasn't like a blowout. Well, and it's, I mean, it's also an interesting um, thing to note because I mean, yeah, sure, you aren't commuting now, but also a transit project like this takes four or five years. So, you know, fingers crossed yeah. that you would be by the time it was done. But also, I mean, you know, try asking voters to, to look like four or five years ahead. Yeah, which is um, which is a danger of ballot initiatives is that it's it's we're supposed to put trust in our elected officials to to look that far ahead, um, but instead, like you like you said, they just sort of kicked the kicked the can back to the voters and expected them to take responsibility for something like this. Right, and like they have they have a full staff whose entire job is to like research measures like this and, Mm -hmm. you know, tell the elected officials if it's good or bad and what it would do. And, you know, if you're asking like just average people to vote for four or $5 billion in new taxes, it's like, what, you know? Well, yeah. And I mean, this is, this has like, you know, like you said, seven different components. Universal preschool is very much like, do you want this to happen? Here's how it's paid for or, right. um, or drug decriminalization, which, um, you know, besides the rehabilitation part is essentially just, um, you know, just like a change in enforcement. Um, this, this transit measure is very complex and multifaceted and it's sort of ridiculous that any voter could be assumed to make a totally informed decision about it. Yeah. And I think that's, where something like the the campaign finance measure succeeded where this failed it's because that measure was pretty simple it was like should we regulate finance and the answer is yes but here if you're like should we allocate five billion dollars from a 0.75 percent payroll tax on employees of 25 employees or higher like no one's gonna sit through that and if they hear some like any argument yeah yeah if they hear any coherent argument for or against they're gonna go for it and you know it just so happens that the opposition to this measure was overwhelmingly wealthy and had the money and time to make that argument yeah and i mean it's worth noting that like a 0.75 percent tax on nike is going to be a lot more money um than a 0.75% tax on, you know, like the corner store around the block or whatever, um, which wouldn't have 25 employees, but pretend it does. Um, Yeah, but Nike would literally go out of business and we would lose millions of jobs. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the interesting thing um, about campaign finance is like, um, you know, obviously uh, it could be more damaging to the small business to pay this 0.75% tax, but in the cost benefit analysis, um, you know, it would cost them way more money to campaign against it than would they would actually be charged on the tax. Whereas a huge company like Nike, I, I don't even, I don't even know if Nike was involved in this. It's just the example I'm using. Um, but like the 0.75% tax on Nike, they can, you know, they can actually run those numbers and say, well, we'll still save money if we spend X amount of money on an ad campaign against it and we strike it down. Yeah. And I think there is that cost benefit analysis where when you propose a measure like this, you really have to take that into account. Like, you know, when you're considering if it's going to pass or not, then you have to write it to to ensure that it has the best chance of success and this was a complex measure that most people did not want to sit through which that, the you know which the campaign finance measure did an excellent job of because it didn't have a single number in the entire thing it was just an abstract idea that sounds good right and then the actual limits themselves are going to be decided by the legislature which is full of people whose actual job is to decide that yeah i mean you know it's a fun hypothetical. Well, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. <laughs> Whether or not they actually will, who knows? But um, so that is basically Oregon state and local elections. Um, there, there are some other elections hey, statewide. You I know? really did not expect us to go on for fifty minutes about about these measures, but we yeah, definitely me did. There, there's actually a surprising amount to talk about. Um, also, just. You know, Tobias Reed and Ellen Rosenblum won re-election to state treasurer and attorney general, respectively. Everyone knows surprises. those names. Yep. They're household yeah. names. Which is sad because they're actually like super important jobs. Well, but, yeah. I mean, no one knows. Um, I mean, you know, I, you, you can, I can poo-poo it all I want, but um, a state attorney general is, is currently probably going to be vice president of the entire country so it, it can be leveraged into a very powerful position for sure yeah and um also kate brown governor was uh secretary of state before she kind of accidentally came into the job when her predecessor resigned so all these statewide offices are important uh, is she up for re-election at any point she wasn't this time i was she if I know, um, she, she either is up in 2022 or she's term limited. I'm not entirely sure. Well, you know, we've got two years to outline the episode for that. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, it's going to be a Democrat anyway who gets elected. So does it, it matter? May, <laughs> it may, in fact, be Ted Wheeler. And I, should, <laughs> oh I shouldn't say that on Don't air. Don't say but... that out loud, Jesus. I would not be entirely shocked. I just, I actually just considered that. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, uh, but can I mean, you be elected governor with only 47% of the Portland vote? <laughs> That's a great point. You need pretty much unanimous Portland vote to cancel out the people in Umatilla County or whatever. Yeah, that, that would be the day when Ted Wheeler gets defeated by a Republican. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, until yeah. next time. That's our podcast. Yeah. Flash video. If you're watching on YouTube. Yeah. If you made it this far, you are my mother. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Actually, <laughs> um, th if you did listen all the way through, um, thank you for uh, dealing with this. I'm. Yeah. So subscribe sorry. to our Patreon. I don't know okay. what life circumstances you're going through, but I hope you get through it. Um, yeah. All right, signing off. Good night.